Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 6, Acts 6. We established last week that a church is an organism and also an organization. Those two things that you try to keep in tandem. And as an organization, there's also leadership involved. And the leadership of this early church had to make adjustments because there was a need that had arisen with the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking foreign Jews that were in Jerusalem. The uh, widows were not getting taken care of, so they brought that need before the church. These needs were exacerbated because not only were they neglected, but there was probably a little bit of prejudice going on as well. And so uh, it brings us to Acts 6, 1 through 7. Let's all stand as we take a look at this. Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of their priests became obedient to the faith. Father, we ask that as we gather together and as we look at this passage that your Holy Spirit would take it, apply it to each of us. Let us see how we can expand the influence that we have and whatever venues that we're in, and would you help us to be a more vibrant organism, a better organization, and uh, fill us today with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was telling the first service that as I was uh, coming to church today, I realized that there was something missing that I wanted to say in this message. Of course, you know, when that strikes you at 8 in the morning on your way to church, you know you're in trouble What I didn't want was an imbalance in this message where we talk about leadership, we talk about organization, and to give the impression that kind of all your eggs are in that basket, and if you just organize right, then hey, things are going to turn out right. And that's definitely not what I want to communicate. And there's a a passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 that I think says it best. It says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. It seems obvious from this passage that it is God who gives the increase. And so I think we need to keep that in mind that as we talk about leadership, yes, it's important. Yes, organizations are responsible. But let's understand that God gives the growth. And I sometimes wonder how exactly God does that when there are bad leaders. And sometimes there are bad leaders and God still gives the growth. 
Jan and I, when we lived out in Denver, we had attended a church. We didn't go there regularly, but uh, a friend of ours was on staff there, so we would go occasionally. But the pastor there was well-known throughout the world, actually, had written some books and you know, for his uh, church innovations and all that, and they had multiple congregations that would meet at the same time in the same facility. So you'd have several people preaching at different parts of the facility, and you know, this was innovative, new, and cool and all. What we didn't know is that this pastor was having an affair with his secretary for a long period of time. And the church was growing like gangbusters. I'm like, how does that happen? God gives the growth. And actually, it's a little prideful for me to even speak like that because I realize, wait a minute, Short, do you really think that anything that CCC does that's good is because of your leadership or because you're doing it right? God is giving the growth, right? I mean, that's the truth of it. It's amazing that God uses any of us. I mean, if you're really to know what goes on in the heart and in the head all the time, God provides the growth. I just want to keep that in mind, and I don't want to overblow the importance of leadership uh, and say it all hinges on that if you want to grow a place. Good leadership, bad leadership, God gives the growth. I can't explain it other than that. God is sovereign. And I think that, uh, you know, we get into this thing, you see a church that really grows, you think, I'm just going to copy everything that church does. And I'm like, eh, that's not necessarily the thing to do. Let's first go to the scriptures, find out what we need to be doing. But just go with the vision God has given you and realize that God will give that growth. And maybe God won't give great growth at your place, but that's okay. Just be faithful to what God has called you to do. I don't think there's a person in here who doesn't have influence. And if you have influence, in my opinion, I think that makes you a leader of some kind. You may not see yourself as a leader. You may think you don't have the gifts of leadership. You may not be in a position of leadership, but you have influence. And so you lead to some degree. So what I want us to do is look at this passage and have a kind of tenacious attitude, a, a humility that says, all right, God, help me to just have better influence in whatever venue you put me in. So if we have that kind of attitude, I think there's something here for us. Verse 2, we covered verse 1 last week. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Well, the first thing I want us to notice is how inclusive their approach was when they say they summoned the full number of the disciples. Now, frankly, I'm not sure how this worked because we know that there were tens of thousands of converts up to this point in Jerusalem. Between chapter 1 and chapter 5, most scholars think there's about five years between there. Um, and so... Here you are in chapter 6. How did they summon tens of thousands of people to get this message out, to communicate this? I don't know, but somehow everybody got word, and they cut a wide swath of people involved in trying to solve this issue. 
the 12 disciples, we could look at them as like elders, all right, got together, and they weren't autocratic, but they were, took a team approach to this, which I think, I think that says something. I think, you know, even though here we have a, we have a pastor, we have elders, we have ministry leaders, uh, we work together to accomplish the mission that God has given us, which is to equip and empower people to utilize their gifts to expand and advance the kingdom of Christ. We then read of the, the priority and the focus of the 12, which for, again, our purposes, we're talking about, I think, elders, the leaders in the church, they were to focus on the word of God. And if you jump to verse 4 where it says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, that was the focus. Prayer and the word of God. That was to be prioritized by certain leaders, and then others were given the responsibility to serve the body of Christ, to minister. In fact, it says to serve tables in verse 2. Now, that's the same word that's actually translated elsewhere, deaconess, deacon, or minister. Same Greek word, and just according to the context, is, is how they translate it. And by the way, when it says serving tables, I just think it means they're probably distributing either the food or money that was to go to the widows, and they would usually do that at a table, all right? But these people are also called ministers. In fact, I would say they are no less ministering than the apostles, no less of a minister than the twelve. I mean, of course, you know, now, you know, you have all these things that you have to do to kind of reach, you know, ordination and all this, and, you know, you, it kind of creates this hierarchy that you have the peons down here, and then you have, you know, those who are really, you know, spiritual and, and ordained way up here. But the Bible doesn't seem to give quite that view that, that both the person who serves, whether it's with the word of God, and in prayer, or the person who serves uh, in physical needs within the body, both are sacred duties. They are sacred duties. You have different people with different gifts. But there's not this sense of superiority or hierarchy. It's just being consistent with the gifted. It's not everybody's called to be a leader because they're not gifted that way. Not everybody's called to teach. They're not gifted that way. That doesn't mean if you're not, aren't in a position of leadership or aren't teaching that you're not important. So teaching the word and serving the body and physical needs, both sacred tasks, both ministers. I like what 1 Corinthians 12 says. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. But I just want to add, if you have body parts talking to you, take your medicine, okay? All right. All right. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. All right? Turn to the person next to you and say, you are an important part of the body of Christ. But listen, it is true. You are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an important part of the body of Christ. But I'm willing to guess not everybody believes that. Because we think, well, I don't have this certain position. And that may come at some point, but you're still an important part. God has gifted you to do something to serve. So these spiritual leaders, these 12 that were in the church, they addressed this problem. And they realized that they could not teach well the word of God and minister in prayer like they were called to do if they were also directly involved in the daily distribution of the money or the the, the goods to help these widows. Again, it's not a sign that one task is unimportant and another is important, but it's just that there was a priority for those 12, the elders, in the word of God and in prayer. Now, when Paul wrote to a church leader in 1 Timothy 2.15, he said this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So these church leaders are given the responsibility to rightly handle the word of truth. With everything else that is going on and that happens in a church, it is the elders and a pastor's primary responsibility to handle well the word of God. Doesn't matter if you have lasers and smoke machines on the stage, handle well the word of God. That is the main duty. Now, the apostles, by the way, weren't always rattling off books to be written in the New Testament. There are some apostles that didn't have books inserted in the New Testament. So what did they teach when they were teaching? They were teaching books from the Old Testament. That meant they had to study. That meant they had to prepare. That meant they had to acquire some knowledge. I think people get the impression that when the Holy Spirit uses a person, it's all extemporaneous. I don't think that's the standard of the work of the Spirit. I'm not saying the Spirit can't do that. He certainly can But when they taught the word of God, I like what 1 Timothy 4.13 says. It says you have to read the word, you have to explain the word, and you apply the word. You do your homework prayerfully and, and with humility to prepare what you have, either before a class or before the church body. Well, what we're seeing is the importance of understanding that each person has a job and for leaders to delegate what they cannot do so that they can prioritize the things that they must do, stay focused on their mission. 
The 12 then got down to the business of delegating in verse 5, or excuse me, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, first of all, it was common within Judaism to have within the courts seven members. So they're simply borrowing from what they know, what is from their experience, and having seven that would do this. You think, well, was that a magical number? No, not really, but it's similar to the experience that they had. And so these seven people had to be of good reputation, they had to be wise, and they had to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, everyone around them had to plainly see that these people had integrity, that they could be trusted, that they possessed a working knowledge of the task that they were called to do. And they were the type of people that exhibited the fruit of the Spirit. And these qualities had to be evident to the church, which is why it says they were picked from among them. So great care had to be taken in choosing the leaders. Uh, that's why for ministry leaders, it's important that, that you sit down and see whether they're qualified. Or with elders, you sit down, you go through the, the uh, qualifications. We take that very seriously. It takes us at a minimum six months once we start the process to get to a point where we're even ready to announce a person to you as an elder candidate because there is scrutiny that goes on with that. You know, you can have people that are nice, you can have people well-known within the body of Christ, well-liked, but they may not be suitable for leadership. Doesn't mean they're less than another person. Not everybody is called to be in, in a position like that. But I want you to notice that, and I pointed this out last week, there's great restraint and wisdom in how the leaders approach this. Because you might remember that we talked about last week in verse 1, it talks about these um, people were complaining, and that's a very negative term. It's meant to be negative. They didn't necessarily handle this right. But what I think is cool is that the leaders did not focus on that. You know, the, 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 the leaders did not throw a hissy fit and say, hey, listen, we're not going to listen because you guys didn't come to us in a nice way. All right? And by the way, who are you to question us? As leaders, you shall not touch God's anointed. By the way, anybody says that, run in the other direction, okay? The leaders were at least humble enough and understood that, listen, this is a real problem. They saw the truth of the complaint and didn't get hung up on the fact that there was murmuring and grumbling going on. And by the way, not that the body wasn't responsible for that. They were, but the leaders were just going to, not drop the ball, especially on handling this situation. So I think good leaders will recognize the problems, the organizational problems, and they're not going to blame it on someone else. Notice that after this group within the church um, had the feeling that they were overlooked and they addressed it, all right, the leadership demonstrated that they were listening and they sufficiently addressed the complaint. Verse 5, and when, and what they said pleased the whole gathering about gather among you seven people that, that could address this. 
and then it, it names the people, all right? And it says, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, what is significant about the seven names? You say, well, why is it important that they name the people? Because check this out. Every one of those names are Greek names. They were Hellenists. The politically correct move would be, all right, let's take three of the, you know, Israeli Jews, kind of homeland Jews. Let's pick, you know, three or four then of the um, foreign Jews and see if they can't come up with a solution. That had been the politically correct group uh, way to go about it, but that's not what they did. The 12 were committed to meeting the need. They chose seven Greek-speaking people to do this. You know what it is? These are seven people who have skin in the game. They have a stake in the outcome. It was a master stroke of genius on a part of those apostles. And after they were chosen, they laid hands on those seven, prayed over them. And by the way, that's just a, a sign of approval, a sign of, of commissioning them to the task of caring for the widows. What I love with all of this is that the church made an adjustment. It changed the system to meet the need. They didn't let tradition get away. That's not the way we've always done it. Well, so what? Do whatever it takes to meet the need. They, they, they may have even stepped out of the culture in terms of the, of the subculture of how the church operated. They had to create a new system to meet the need. And the result, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let us acknowledge that a church can be greatly helped by good organization, right? but it can also be greatly hampered by bad organization. Now, we normally think that, you know, what what affects a church? What's going to make a church grow? You've got to have great worship. You've got to have, you know, uh, preaching and all this. And it's certainly true that you want to have those things, but let's not skip over the fact that a poor organization can hamper a church, right? can hamper it greatly. And in Acts 6, The church responded with honesty. It responded with humility. It responded by delegating and the word of God and the disciples multiplied. So organization matters. But this is what I want us to understand. Good or bad organization, listen, that's the choice of leadership. Good or bad organization is the responsibility of leadership. Now, when things go wrong in a church, we have a choice to make at that point. There's a great temptation, I think, for church leaders at any, you know, in any position within a church to blame the congregation. You know, you'll hear things like, if people were just more involved, we can't get people to serve. If people just cared more, all right? And you hear this refrain over and over again. And these kinds of things clearly 
put the blame on the people. And in my opinion, it's not a far trip to bitterness from that point. I think there's a healthier approach. And that is to focus on what you can do as a leader. To focus on leadership. Have I, as a pastor or or any other leader, all right, um, can I provide better leadership, better organization? Is there training? Have I done everything I can to help in this situation? Has a frank conversation taken place with the people involved so that they understand what we're dealing with? And are they unwilling or unable to do their job? Now listen, as a parent, as a husband, as a pastor, maybe for you as a, as a, uh, a leader in your job, all right, I think this approach keeps you from a constant attitude of blame and bitterness. And it's not that other people aren't responsible. I'm not saying that congregation isn't responsible for their approach. They certainly are. You're to, you're to serve. You're to be humble. You're to support your leaders. All of that is true. But I think as leaders, we have to choose not to just jump to blame and then have our hearts grow bitter. Instead, we have to jump to what our responsibility is as leaders and see what we can do. And so I want to be able to look at the situation and see what can I do to improve? And if I don't know, then maybe I should ask my mentors. And if I don't have any mentors, then I need to go get some. And if I can't find any, then you just do whatever it takes because that is your job as a leader. When I talk to husbands, you know, and many of them are just are in a fog about, all right, I know I need to be a spiritual leader in my family, but what does that mean? You know what it means? It's simple. You do whatever it takes to make sure that there's a healthy environment in your house. That's it. Whatever it takes. You show initiative. That could mean a hundred different things in an organization, but the buck stops with you. You do whatever it takes. doesn't mean everybody else isn't responsible. They are. But you show initiative to make sure it gets done. You can blame all the people around you until the cows come home. But the cows are likely going to be scattered, and there's going to be less of them. Blame is not going to get us anywhere. Acts 6 is an encouragement to all leaders that there is great influence that you can exert in whatever organization you're in. And you do that with great wisdom and care. And Luke tells us that a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That means you had leaders, religious leaders, within Israel that were coming to Christ. No no wonder these Pharisees and Sadducees on the Sanhedrin were getting so upset with the encroachment uh, of Christianity upon Judaism because some of their own leaders were converting. It's right around the corner when one of the biggest Pharisees of all would come to Christ and become the greatest missionary to ever live. 
And if you don't know about that story, just keep coming in the next few Sundays and we'll get into that, all right? So what does this passage teach us from a practical standpoint? Number one, take responsibility to be a change maker in whatever situation you are in. Don't blame. Don't be that guy in the organization that constantly complains and doesn't lift a finger. Don't be a cancer in the organization, whatever it is. If you have influence, offer service instead of just words to bring about that change. If there is a negative atmosphere at work and people are just gossiping, listen, be the person who doesn't gossip. Is it hard? Yes. And sure, you're free to find another job, but until then, be the kind of employee that takes responsibility for, the, for yourself and support the leaders above you. And you say, well, if I do that, they're just going to accuse me as a brown noser. Listen, if that's the case, then that makes them an unwitting backside of the anatomy. And that's all I'll say about that, all right? So, number two, Pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your elders, your small group leaders, your ministry leaders, your teachers, that God would encourage, inspire, motivate. The scriptures are replete with principles about this, of how you're to, you're to encourage your spiritual leaders. Pray that God would give them wisdom to bring about the necessary change that the church can experience maximum health. No good leader thinks that he or she has arrived, all right? Every good leader is still learning, still growing, still reading, putting themselves in a position that's not static. And then if you're in a position of influence here at CCC, I want to give you two values to finish out this list, number four and five, that you ought to hang on to. Number four, evaluate everything for excellence and vision compatibility. Evaluate everything. As a leader, ask the team that you are responsible for, hey, how do you think things are going? How do you think we can improve here? Be a person who, who elicits feedback. Now, if you think you're beyond this, if you think, ah, you know, I'm the only person who really knows how to do this, and I'm not going to let these other people really you know, have my ear because it's just a waste of time. And In the end, I'm just going to have to decide what to do. If that's your attitude, you've got your head in the sand because you are denying the biggest asset you have, and that is the people around you. Evaluate everything. Next is that relationships are your biggest asset. Your leadership acumen, your skill at teaching or whatever it is that that you're doing. It's only going to get you so far. If people don't know that you care about them, how do you think that's going to influence their willingness to follow you? I mean, you can whip up performance and demand it, and that may get you so far. But motivation comes from the heart. And if people in your organization don't think that you respect them or care about them, how motivated do you think they're going to be? May God provide CCC with the kind of leaders that can, with, with God's power, see the word of God and disciples multiply.